This is the Most of Musa podcast number six. Today in the studio, I have a senior lecturer and a conversation analyst, Dr. Alia. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Musa. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So we got in touch a few months ago because of this project you had called Swedish Pakistani. Mm-hmm. And if you can talk a bit more about that, what is it and how you started it? So Swedish Pakistanis is a local project run together by uh, Fazila and me. Uh, and what we do in that project is that we connect with local Pakistanis living here in Sweden, mostly. Uh, and we ask them some questions and they take over the account for about five days and they tell their stories in, in different posts. So the idea was to find uh, people with Pakistani heritage in Sweden and uh, connect with them and listen to their stories. So it's basically a safe space for networking, for connecting and listening to the stories. And we found out that um, since we are a very small migrant group as compared to, uh, let's say, Somali diaspora, Turkish diaspora and Arabic speaking diaspora, and also scattered around Sweden, we found many people living in the same city who found out about each other through Swedish Pakistanis. So it's kind of been a connecting uh, mm-hmm. space as well. And it's been a one, one year of this project. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Like the Indian community is very well organized here and they hold and organize a lot of different events where community like, comes together and celebrates some event while the Pakistani community barely organizes anything. I wonder if that's because the the embassy and the organizers here are not very vigilant and not very organized or is it just because the Pakistani community is uh, comparatively smaller than the Indian community? No, I think there are actually many events run by different groups, uh, even the embassy. It's, it, there are a lot of like cricket events, Mela or a, a annual Basant. fair, Basant and mm-hmm. uh, 23rd March, 14th August, and uh, done on a very huge uh, scale as well. Uh, I also had the opportunity of reading Urdu stories, for instance, to the uh, at the International Library. And Pakistan Embassy was uh, very generous and kind to uh, come on the World Book Day and support me and the people who were listening there. And they brought um, food for lots of people. There was also another event by Pakistan Embassy, I think about four years ago, where they brought uh, and distributed free food. So there was a stall in Sergil Storia, and you could see the queue from uh, from Sergil Storia up till the Olians because it was free food, tikka, mangoes, mm. you name it. So they have been, depending on uh, where you find them. But the thing is, like, even within Swedish Pakistanis, there are different age groups. Uh, we have different compositions, different tastes, different language groups. So it will be, uh, we, we also need different types of spaces. So this is another space. Uh, and there are other spaces as well. But um, Swedish Pakistanis, lately, there have been more Pakistanis coming up, like in like, like 15 years, uh, people with technical backgrounds and other parts of Europe, other parts of uh, the world as well. So it has become a growing community. Uh, there are, for inst- there's, for instance, another group of Pakistani women who meet for fikas um, all around Stockholm, and there are like hundreds of them. Hundreds of them, not uh, hundreds of them. <clears throat> so there are different types of groups, I would say. Uh, so this is another effort, which um, which is a social media platform. And we have other sisterly or brotherly 
projects as well, like uh, Swedish-Turkish projects, Swedish-Iraqi, Swedish-Somali, so on, so on and so forth. And what it does is that we can look at the different compositions, and then we come back, and then we go out in 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 the in the different spaces. Uh, but there will always be some stories which will be exclusive for one group, and maybe not uh, interesting for another group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I felt a very big difference in the behavior of people who are born, who are pa- Pakistanis who are born here, and or who came at a very early age, and Pakistanis who came at a later age, like me. I came here like when I was 18, mm-hmm. while I had some cousins who were born here or lived all their lives, lives here. And then the like, then there's this complicated thing about oh, uh, who is more Pakistani or who is more Swedish? Who is more Swedish? Who identifies? And there is no right answer, right or wrong answer. Maybe I lived my whole life in Pakistan. I still don't feel Pakistani. I I want to be more Swedish, mm. while someone who has lived all their life here and they consume more Pakistani culture and Pakistani media and they love that culture more than me. So I guess it depends from person to person what they want to identify as. Yeah, and also <coughs> the thing is like you could identify with something at one point which you might not identify in a couple of months or even this next day. And uh, who is more Pakistani? That's a uh that's a very difficult question and that might be questioned even by people back home in pakistan mm-hmm. like are we pakistani enough okay this person has lived 10 years 20 years mm-hmm. they're not pakistani enough it's true that for us to understand certain jokes for instance mm-hmm. or things that are currently happening in pakistan it might be difficult for us but same is true for them mm-hmm. as well uh so this hyphenated thing swedish pakistanis that's a continuum where you are sometimes more swedish or more pakistani or something in between um, because we are always evolving even if we don't leave a city all of our life we'll meet different people and that will have some impact on us as well mm, as pakistanis and the subcontinent in general we're very patriotic people because our country is fairly new on the world map plus our ancestors sacrificed their lives and their wealth and everything to get us this country but that also the wrong side of the patriotism is when people criticize when you criticize something about pakistan about the government then people are even just a joke then people get offended really easily and they're like hey like you should be patriotic you're pakistani why are you saying stuff like that and never say anything against pakistan yeah, yeah but that, that's a common uh, mm, discourse mm, and common um uh, yeah thing among pakistanis but i didn't they... choose to be a pakistani i was just born here by luck <laughs> yeah. or whatever yeah but the thing is like nationalism has been fed in the post-colonial states uh after second world war and the idea of one nation one state came and that's how pakistan came into being as well right or wrong that's another story but everyone should be able to question uh whether uh it's the history of one's own uh heritage or any place where they're living otherwise we just become like if we don't question the things that we see mm. then how are things going to evolve or change for pakistan as well or even for sweden as well there are things which are not perfect so we should be able to question whether it's a country of our choice or country of by birth or country of parental heritage when it comes to pakistan it has a very complex uh, history as well if you think about it with 72 languages and mm. language communities provinces and a country which is born about 70 years ago 
uh, although the heritage or civilization is so old, it has had impact from different invaders, 200 years of British history, and before that, 700 years of Persian as a, mm. as a court language. Mm. So we have had cultural and language impacts, but also so many different religions and history. And then the state is born where we are told to accept it as it is. And that's how I guess the, the aspect of uh, nationalism has been fed to us mm. because we are what we see or we are told by our culture or society. Uh, and as you will see that that's quite strong in, in Pakistan, nationalism. Mm. Just because you're criticizing someone, that doesn't mean you don't like it. That actually means you want to make it even better. Yeah. But people just wanna don't even look at the problem. I don't know. Uh, do you know the name of the lady who won the Oscar from Pakistan for making a Shermin documentary? Lubeth, yeah. Chinoy, yes. She receives so much hate on social media mm -hmm. because she highlighted this really bad and gruesome part of Pakistan, which is a part of us. We can't deny it. Mm. But people say, oh, that's not true. It's all fake. And why doesn't she why didn't she make documentaries on the good side of Pakistan? The thing is, like, um, about both the things being very nationalistic and being very critical, uh, the, the middle path is always the right path. Or I would say that's why I love my field, which is research, that you look at the data, the facts objectively uh, and nothing beyond the data. So when it comes to, for instance, um, femicides, uh, women being murdered or killed by their family members, um, I recently looked at the statistics so I saw that it's not just in Pakistan uh, that women are killed by family members, uh, and it's not a very huge number as compared to many other countries and continents. In Africa and Latin America, it's much huger than Pakistan. But somehow, like, you know, uh, due to Islamophobia, Pakistanphobia as well, sometimes news about Pakistan gets highlighted more than other parts of the world. I mean, would you think that Latin America or uh, Africa is the most dangerous place for a woman to live? Mm -hmm. uh, most people would probably say Pakistan or parts of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, so the thing is, there is a researcher, uh, there was a researcher, a Swedish researcher. His name is Hans Rosling, and his book is called Factfulness. And I really admire the way he uh, looks at the world problems and stays very connected to the statistics and then shows in his presentations that the world is actually becoming a better place. So even for the news about Pakistan, I have now started looking at the real statistics, like United Nations statistics, and rather than going to, uh, or rather than believing what the news media says or the news headlines says, because the news headlines are picked. Mm -hmm through political uh, choices uh, and what sells most. So I, I am kind of becoming a bit careful mm -hmm. uh, when I'm also, when I also get negative news about Pakistan. Of course, Shamina Obech and I did a very good thing by highlighting an issue, but there's so many other issues as well which need to be highlighted as well. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in the criticism that she got because that's also become like a drawing room culture in Pakistan too. 
just criticize things like you know mm-hmm. in UK people people talk about how is the weather and can spend an hour on it mm-hmm. in Pakistan as well this has become like a norm just mm-hmm. to start criticizing just mm-hmm. for the sake of chit chatting so you told me you haven't lived a long time in Pakistan but you are very connected to the culture i feel like you're more connected than me so have you always been like this and connected to your roots or was this like a change that you adopted later on in life I don't know if I'm that connected actually. I don't know what it means, but I mean mm-hmm. recently I've, uh, it's also like if you if you have been like brought up in uh, different parts of the world and your parents come from a certain uh, part of the world and you live in another maybe it's also nostalgia that you go back to visit those things. So lately for instance I have um, started reading Urdu poetry which I haven't actually done since I was 18. So it's been a long, long, long time ago. Uh, and I know that I need to know a bit more. I can read and write or do, of course. So that's that's my connection. Of co- And uh, food, of course, I use mm. Pakistani food a lot. Mm. Uh, but besides that, I think whatever your location is, that's the most important part because that's where you're living, your neighbors. Um, but when we have extended families or loved ones in another country, they come into our lives as well but i've also been thinking so i can also ask you a few questions like okay we've talked about colon like the uh, pakistan as a post colonial state briefly but do you think like um living in sweden but also in other parts of the world like i used to live in saudi arabia and i know like it might be similar in dubai and the other gulf countries as well uh, the influence of the uh, influence of hollywood or american and british media is very strong uh, even in the 80s and the 90s pre-internet days we could uh, watch the movies almost the same time when it when they were released in the us mm-hmm. so that was the biggest impact it's just very true for here as well like uh, when it's american elections you feel um, that it's somehow here the us is here yeah, the yeah, us exactly. elected it's very here right mm-hmm. um i've had students after the trump's first election they were sad, very sad the next day when i went to the class and this time as well they were very happy and throughout one year because i teach english linguistics and we have argumentative essays and uh, discursive essays and things like that majority of the topics were about the us mm-hmm. US TV shows or US elections the anti-maskers in mm-hmm. uh, the US for instance so what do you what what uh, before i ask you another question what do you think about that yeah we talked a little bit about this in my last podcast as well why why do we adopt so much of the political systems of the US and i i think it's because US takes the lead in many industries Hollywood is the biggest like film industry and all of the social media as we use everything is from the US like uh, Netflix is a US based streaming platform so obviously most of the things are going to be US based and then people are going to consume that and then like all like the major like technological advances or inventions even though if they're not based in the US somehow they are connected to the US like they were developed more in the US because it was called a land of opportunity where all of these different kind of ideas and cultures went and it was a melting pot so i guess that's why like so many things have originated or have been developed so much in the US that the world had no option to adopt them yeah so let's say in the life of a teenager 
these days in Stockholm. Um, when they wake up, they will probably come into contact with a few songs, which will be either American or British English songs. And then if you go on social media, whatever is happening right now in the U.S., like uh, what's the president ordering mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or what is the what is the hottest topic, that is like the topic of discussion mm-hmm. as well. So f- from the post-colonial perspective, and as a... Let's say you were going to write a bachelor's thesis now. I don't I don't know what that is. I didn't go to university. <laughs> okay, so as an IB project. It's like an essay? Yeah, essay. Okay. What, will, what kind of topics would you choose? Like if you were told to think about a world problem, an issue. I mean, in a way, it's a good thing that we are, it's like the world is being connected more and we are exposed to different cultures, whether it's the U.S. or China, whatever. So, I mean, we call the U.S. a superpower for a reason. That's why, because they're dominating in all these different industries. Mm-hmm. But we also call this cultural imperialism. If you read mm. Edward Said, and uh, he talks about cultural Amer- mm. imperialism and American imperialism. The thing is, like, uh, whatever we are exposed to, our reality, or our we, ad- we absorb all the ideas that we are getting. Mm-hmm. And in this case, like the question that I, I ask you, so if you're, if you're consuming 80% of the time uh, things from the U.S., those are going to be projected in the mm-hmm. things we do. Mm-hmm. But all other countries, they don't get the equal space in this whole discursive space. You know what I mean? Like, so uh, we, you, you just said something about globalization, mm-hmm. but it's something happening in the U.S. It's not here in Sweden, in Stockholm or in the European continent. Mm-hmm. But that's considered okay and fine if we, let's say, if you go to your high school mm-hmm. and talk to your student, uh, friends or you hang out uh, with them in the FICA. But in the same way, if you, for instance, talked about political parties of Pakistan or things happening in mm-hmm. Pakistan, they don't, they're not equally. You Act- see what I mean? Actually, when I went to an international school and I did talk about like when the whole Imran Khan versus Nawaz Sharif saga was happening, like I did talk about them. People were actually really interested in talking about those things. Like I would say again, where are we getting all these news from? Mm. It's all so- social media or like news channels that we mostly consume are based in the US. So we have no other choice like you said the us has like a monopoly on these things so we have no other choice but even if you bring up those other stuff like if i bring up news from pakistan and stuff uh, my friends are okay talking yeah, about yeah. and they find it really interesting and they but would I'm be but i'm talking about the majority what is majority mm-hmm. so the thing is whatever you're consuming your point of view is going to be that's what i actually wanted to mm-hmm. get on with uh, when we teach for instance media and communication uh, so let's say if I give some students a task in the class, we ask them to look at the same news from different countries. Mm-hmm. So now we have different choices, like we have TRT from Turkey, um, what's it, Al Jazeera from Qatar, mm-hmm. and Pakistani and Indian uh, newspapers, as well as from South Africa. When you look at the same headlines from mm-hmm. all different countries, you will see that their political agenda or reporting for the same thing is worded differently, but that's obviously going mm-hmm. to be worded differently. Mm-hmm. But it also is looked upon very differently. And that's just headlines. But the common people, when they absorb and listen to different things without making up their mind mm-hmm. and checking the facts, that's how their mind is going to... Yeah, the media hear. plays a big role in like manipulating all this kind of stuff. 
But that's a really interesting question. I haven't thought about it that much. It's really complicated. But I've also noticed in this younger generation, there's also this new wave in this younger generation to connect back to their roots if they are from a different country. Like I've noticed if people, if the Swedish, uh, Pakistani, Swedish, Thai, whatever they are, mm-hmm. they're moving more towards yes. uh, their own roots, their parents' roots or whatever. Even in the U.S., people who have like people, even if they're from generations, they have migrated and they're living in the U.S., mm-hmm. they still say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm Irish or German or I'm half American, African or whatever. Yeah. Like people still stay connected back to their roots. Mm-hmm. They don't fully adopt. This also- I agree with you mm-hmm. completely. And I, I feel like... Um, this these are hyphenated identities are becoming more acceptable uh, generally at the grassroots levels uh, in the society uh, but many in many spaces not all spaces still but like if you if you talk to anybody from pakistani heritage in in britain they will say i'm pakistani mm-hmm. or they might say they're british i think it also depends on if the community has been there for a longer time uh the third or fourth generation uh, are kind of proud of their heritage and they feel safe which the first generation migrants uh cannot feel the same way because mm. they're in a in a in a new space where they're different if they come from the asian or african backgrounds or for or people like us with dark hair and the brown skin um moving and walking and working mm. in spaces uh which are not similar to us can be very overwhelming so i think for the second and third generation people it's kind of becoming more okay they're more okay with this mm-hmm. uh, but i would also like to bring in social media to this mm-hmm. even though social media is criticized a lot i am really thankful that social media is there Me i too. mean think about mm-hmm. your podcast you um, i mean before only um, people with connections to the newspapers or magazines could uh, write articles or express themselves but now anybody who has internet or a mobile mm-hmm. phone or a social media account can express themselves and can build a community out there mm-hmm. so i think these uh, since we've been talk listening to di- different stories like these uh, we've also like i talked about we are absorbing the hollywood mm-hmm. and uh, um bollywood or other words mm-hmm. we are also absorbing this the uh, stories by regular people people like you and me yeah uh an everyday story of how somebody uh went to the university for the first time or uh if somebody is living in umyo mm. and from thailand and what were their problems or how good were the people local mm. people or how i mean in the olden days if you not just the olden days but like 80s and 90s as well you will find this kind of discourse like your i mean scary things about the european continent from the asian perspective <laughs> but we know that there are good people everywhere um there's um, like in the swedish um, society mm-hmm. if you seek help at the university people are very welcoming and very supportive um so these kind of stories probably hadn't been uh, reaching far off places but now social media makes it possible in mm-hmm. in a blink of a second mm-hmm. So I think um, that's a good side of social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Social media is a really good tool that you can use. Depends on how you use it. But I guess when they were making social media or like the internet, there the idea was to connect 
people together and men share ideas and once we do that the world will become a better place and then nobody expected it to become so toxic and th the bad and negative side of people and their negative wishes or urges yeah. actually got highlighted through mm -hmm. uh, internet social yeah, media yeah, it, it, i mean but the thing is t anything can be toxic human beings even before pre-internet days were both toxic and yeah. good as well and a mix of mm -hmm. and we are all a mix of it so that's mm -hmm. also one thing so social media yes very uh, polished pictures mm -hmm. or uh, pictures of exotic places those can be um, toxic in some ways and in some ways they're not mm -hmm. so it depends on how much time we spend on it mm -hmm. uh, and time is one thing which I would say that it, it can get sucked in mm -hmm through social media. Also, social media plays a role in bringing down barriers of stereotypes. Like, if you grew up in Pakistan, uh, like, back in my day when, when I was growing up, there wasn't much social media. And if you stick to the conventional news uh, media, then it's, it's the conventional news media is so much... Uh, what do you call it? Like controlled about the the narrative. If so much control, it's never just facts. It's like one side or the other. Like growing up, you always hear from the news: "Oh, India is bad. They're the enemies, mm -hmm. and they're animals. Whatever, whatever it is, the infidels, uh, whatever you may call them." And then you you grow up with this hatred in your heart, and you always think you believe that those people are bad. But once because of social media or because of coming here to Sweden or to other countries where you see different kind of communities coming together and then you realize, oh, hey, they're the same. Yeah, he's yeah. exactly like me or very similar to me mm -hmm. than any other. Yeah. That's what I meant by the, the Hollywood projection or cultural imperialism. Mm -hmm. It's the it's it's uh, it's our I mean, for us to see what Pakistani media feeds us or what the Pakistani narrative is fed. Maybe we're not yet able to see how it is fed here in Sweden. But of course, some sort of narrative is built up here as well. Mm -hmm. But talking about stereotypes, uh, I have a project called Muslim Scientists yes. Europe. And that's co-founded with uh, two other colleagues. And what we do with this is that we interview PhDs from all around the European continent who have a Muslim background or are Muslims and identify themselves as Muslim, scientists and European. So either you need to have a PhD from Europe or are doing research here, whether you're born here or later you came here, that's fine as well. And we started that because um, one day when I was um, looking for pictures of scientists, I, I used Google to write scientist and then I clicked on images and all I saw was white middle-aged men wearing lab coats. They were like I think there was like one or two pictures of people from other backgrounds, but no brown or black people, but no, um, and not many women as well who looked like me or women I know have PhDs or mm -hmm. are scientists. Uh, and then I, I wrote down Muslim scientists, and then we checked what those images were. And they were pretty shocking as well. What we saw through that, if you Google it now as well, you'll see that men, again, it was men mm -hmm. who looked very much like from... Uh, Middle Eastern backgrounds, long beards and turbans and big robes. Not something that I have ever seen in my life, even mm -hmm. in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. So they were like giants of the golden age. Mm -hmm. Page after page, it was only those men which have been dead for about 1200 years or more. And there is no denying the fact that they, uh, the, uh, the Muslim civilization at that time, which is called Golden Age, has contributed so much to science. There is no denying that fact. 
But just thinking about the the uh, the, uh, the Muslim community's narrative or cultural memory through those those pictures was kind of quite uh, eye-opening for us because we could see that we were stuck in a certain period of time. Like we talked about uh, Swedish Pakistani's heritage. Are you Pakistani or are you Swedish? Are you there or are you here? Mm-hmm. Same is true for the Muslim scientist narrative as well. Like in in the social media discussions or everyday discussions where Muslims meet, generally speaking, there is like, oh, we're not good enough. I won't talk about as a Muslim being good enough, but as a scientist or mm-hmm. progression or things like that. And the field of innovation. Innovation, yeah. which is not true. I mean, I've been in the, social, in the Swedish uh, academia for about 13 years. And I've met so many academics in Sweden, but I know there are hundreds of them in Pakistan, in Turkey, in Morocco, in Egypt, in so many other countries. And there are so many with PhDs. I mean, Muslim-majority countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Pakistan, India cannot be devoid of Muslim PhDs, chemists, physicists, mm-hmm. linguists, social scientists. So their narrative is kind of sweep down with this this imaginary land of robes, mm-hmm. uh, robe-wearing mm-hmm. men. Yeah. And if you talk about that, it is kind of also considered blasphemous, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. you are, uh, like the nationalism thing that we talked about, Cape, you can't talk about Pakistan in a negative way. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you say that people are doing stuff now, it doesn't mean people didn't do stuff then. Mm-hmm. So we, we um, started looking for colleagues first here in Stockholm, and in different uh, universities, KDH, for instance, the Royal Institute of Technology, has the biggest number of foreign-born PhDs. And if in the world or just in Sweden? Uh, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in Sweden, generally speaking, the most of the PhD students. I don't know about the statistics, exact numbers, but it's foreign-born PhDs. If you Google, you know, if you don't Google, if you just write. So I use the name Mohammed. Mm-hmm which is a very common name, at the KDH University's website. And I found like 50 people with the name of Muhammad. So we kind of like started with Sweden and then we looked at other countries. There were scientists from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. There, was, there were people from different ling- lingo-ethnic backgrounds like mm-hmm. uh, Bosnia, um, Turkey, um, Pakistan, India, uh, with that heritage. Mm-hmm. We found that those people had been in the universities or working in their different fields and maybe they they have had the opportunity to go out in the media as well mm. but putting them under this banner we kind of are like shattering the these stereotypes of what we have in our mind and the thing is like if you if you think about muslim scientists europe we also get this question that by scientists do you mean somebody sitting in the lab because that's mm. also a stereotype we are trying to break through this. A scientist works with, a scientist can uh, be working in soft sciences or hard sciences, which is a social scientist or physicist, chemist, biologist. So that has been like a, an eye-opening project as well, mm-hmm. because we have found uh, like people who have written 50 books, can you imagine, in Stockholm, and in Sweden, for instance, a Muslim PhD who has been working uh, with the theoretical perspectives of critical race theory, for instance. Uh, and then we met a person. It sounds so complicated. I don't even know what those words mean. Yeah, but imagine 50 <laughs> books. I think more than 50, actually. Wow. And then we found somebody from uh, UK with a Pakistani heritage who moved to Pakistan at the age of... Oh, sorry, moved to UK at the age of four. 
he had a, like a, a different um, kind of struggle as a PhD as well, but his theoretical perspectives or his writings are now being taught at the GCSC or A-levels in mm -hmm. sociology. These are just two examples, mm -hmm. uh, but there are people like uh, one of my colleagues who is a co-founder, he has written 100 articles in his field of turbulence. And he lives here in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. So these kind of uh, stories from the grassroots level, unless and until we give them a voice or a space, not just the narrative that, that the majority brings, I think that's very important. And social media has kind of helped us break that. But uh, it's, I mean, now we have social media. Maybe in 10 years' time, we might have something else. Mm -hmm. So then the genre uh, we will use to express ourselves will be different. But now I think visual mediums are very important as well to uh, leave some sort of an impact if you're trying to uh, break the stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Like for Pakistanis, if you just go to Swedish Pakistanis page and just scroll, you'll find like 50 shades of uh, Pakistanis. Uh, they don't all look the same. They don't all wear the same kind of clothing. And they might also have different uh, language backgrounds. And same is true for the Muslim scientist thing mm -hmm. as well. So I guess... Um, Muslims have a really rich history of innovation. Like the first university was started by a Muslim woman. And then we have like... I learned like a lot about different Muslim scientists in my Pakistani uh, education. Like Al-Khwarizmi or, you know, those people who started with the... Uh, laid the foundations of chemistry and maths and philosophy and all that kind of stuff. And then there was this long period of no Muslim scientists. Maybe which is they, not true. Which is not true, but yeah. we don't know. There was no, it's not documented well or not like highlighted well in the media. I think the, the project you're doing is really good. Plus also I've noticed in the recent times, like the scientific community has been kind of sidelined and they used to be like our heroes who did like work towards making the lives or the world around us better. But now we give more focus and fame and clout to people in the entertainment industry. They have kind of become our heroes more like people who are dancers or good singers or who wear cool clothes or whatever that is. People are, oh, that's my hero. That's my mm -hmm. inspiration. While people who are actually researching and making stride towards making our like life better like in a literal sense are not even like considered to be in the in the media highlight or the media spotlight yeah i mean uh, i hear you i mean singers and actors and dancers who are in the entertainment and this industry mm -hmm. people know their faces so mm -hmm. it, by default they are, they become uh, they get fame mm -hmm. in their profession that which is not the case in our careers mm -hmm. as a, as a, as researchers but if we want the younger generation to also be able to see that look this is a profession as well and these people do things as well mm -hmm. um, far more important things than <laughs> well i, I mean, consider yeah, both I, are important yeah, but, yeah, yeah, both yeah both are yeah. important but also like um, like i said somebody who created a sociology um, theory for instance or somebody who created a mobile phone because there's hundreds of uh, Muslim researchers in mm -hmm. the IT industry, mm -hmm. for instance, software and hardware. Uh, so everything is obviously important. I'm not saying like other professions are not, but if we want both young girls and boys to take up a profession, unless we see them, they see the, uh, our stories, they're not gonna aspire to become mm -hmm. those. 
like even for Sweden, for instance, the statistics for women engineers is quite low. Uh, and I would argue that in Pakistan, for instance, there's a high trend of women going to medical universities, at least. It's a very big number. Although after they get their medical degrees, it, it falls, mm-hmm. which is a social, um, I mean, a social, uh, due to social pressure or for other reasons mm-hmm. as well. But here, I mean, I, we can't really compare this, but if we want uh, women to be able to choose different professions, mm-hmm. uh, we need to see role models mm-hmm. without even saying, okay, this is a profession or that is a profession. Uh, so that should be probably an option somehow for young children to see yeah. in school. I mean, I realized just now that one of the reasons could be because we are so privileged nowadays. Our lives have become so better. The medical field has like advanced so much and we are more connected to other people and technology. We are living a very comfortable life. And then we are, when you are living in comfort, you look for entertainment because you're bored. But when you are not comfortable, when you are in a bad position, then you look towards people mm-hmm. who are actually scientists or innovators who are... Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Like when the... In Sweden, you mean? Do you mean... I think in general. general. Like the urban population, right? Urban population yeah. with a good yeah, income yeah. or... People who generally have like a good life, comfortable life, then you look towards more things to make you more entertained, things that wouldn't bore you. And then... In that case, you look for entertainment in movies or dancers and singers. And then when you consume those things, then automatically those people who are making them will be more famous and will be considered as heroes. And yeah, on that's true. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, with our Muslim scientists, your project as well, when we when we Googled pictures of scientists and Muslim scientists, we also kind of looked at uh, different social media personalities. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you look at the European Muslim or migrant communities, heroes they are usually sports players. Uh, so a Muslim background player, for instance, from Britain or Germany, mm-hmm. um, or a singer, um, or somebody who has a cooking book mm-hmm. or a baking book, uh, who are vis- visually present in the media. Uh, so they are kind of so we we kind of have connected them as our representatives. Mm. But, I mean, that's fine. And I can understand if somebody who from a minority background makes it big, we should support them. And their followership is big as well. Uh, Recently, when uh, two Turkish origin German scientists, the couple who created the vaccine, Mm -hmm. uh, they were appreciated and Uh, Many people started following them and they were in the news or uh, media as well. Mm -hmm. I think we somehow want this kind of, uh, we have this expectation about our scientists that they should break some sort of ceilings, uh, like be saviors or be at the very top. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in academia, we, uh, like the uh, academic careers, they're not really talked about in the public that much as a very challenging kind of a profession as probably you would uh, talk about doctors that you work for five years and it's a very demanding job but scientists or researchers also go through a very difficult period during their PhD studies it's a long project uh, 
and keeping a work-life balance and maintaining your mental health, mm-hmm. it's very um, it's very challenging. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, I think for like you know the top uh, players in a in a sports arena as well, there is like a lot of um, pressure on them. Same is true for the research as well, as well. Like you've done your bachelor's, you've done your master's, and then you've been accepted at the PhD level, which is if you even if you look at the global percentage, it's very small. I think 0.2 percent of the global population, and you you are creating new knowledge, and you are in a project for a long time. You have to publish to sustain your profession, and you have to learn new techniques, new things. Uh, whether you are a biologist looking for cancer cells, or mm-hmm. whether you are a, a linguist looking at uh, studying mm-hmm. science uh, in a street or a chemist or a literary scholar mm-hmm. you have to give your you have to work hard mm-hmm. to finish your phd and that can and that does cost a lot of uh, mental stress which is not really talked about and we only see uh, uh, i mean within the this uh, academic circles we usually look at people's publications and what they have achieved but it is a it is a it is an industry mm-hmm. which is very demanding mm-hmm. and which can be very toxic and it it does cost us a lot of our mental health mm-hmm. because there, we 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 come across a lot of um, uh, deadlines and pressure so the thing is we need uh, a lot of support from like the social support and talking about our own research and and reaching out to the industry about our research is a totally different uh, game mm-hmm. which we are not trained to do so it's a lot of uh, different things uh, as you said about all the hard work and uh, how stem fields are comparatively way harder to do than the arts or the entertainment maybe that could be one of the reasons why people when you look or little kids when you look at stem fields physics chemistry whatever they are math they're like that's so much hard work and then i see people like stressed out all the time and there are budget constraints or whatever it is while you see singers and dancers whatever or tiktokers youtubers mm-hmm. is so easy yeah. and then as human beings inherently it's not so easy but comparatively you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we have this image in our mind that yeah comparatively yes. it's super hard but and then as a young kid you would think yeah as human beings inherently we want more money more power more fame in like in the less amount of time mm, as possible mm, and then mm. when you look at yeah do i want to do this all this hard work yeah. and sitting reading papers and doing this research or do i want to do something in the arts field well i would i would argue that arts field is um quite hard it is well. quite hard yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah like i was trying to uh, audio record yesterday uh, fez's poem mm-hmm. it was just uh, 30 seconds or 40 seconds uh i bahar aayi hai it's time for spring again gulon mein rang wo no it's a uh, bahar it's a different one yeah it's a but i i listened to some songs like which has fast poetry yeah so i was trying this for like i wanted it to be 35 seconds i had to audio record it like 50 times and i told everyone <laughs> not to move around the house yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I, i i was just using my mobile phone and then i realized okay so if i was a stage actress or a performer it would have taken much more because this is my social media i can mm-hmm. just i don't have to be perfect as i thought so i i would i would argue that takes a lot of hard work as well and mm-hmm. i would say that there is this um 
I mean, again, it's a stereotype that STEM fields are better, mm-hmm. uh, that STEM researchers are saving. Yes, they are saving lives mm-hmm. uh, of our physical bodies, right? Uh, when we get illnesses or things like that. But political scientists or social mm-hmm. scientists also study society. And if those findings are actually implemented or used for training purposes, that can also help us, our societies become better. In the beginning, you mentioned that I do conversation analysis, for instance. Uh, so people like me, what we do is like we study human interaction um, in actual uh, life without experiments. So mm-hmm. let's say if we were to study uh, how you and I understood this um, podcast, mm-hmm. because we have no script, right? Yeah. We are doing it as naturally as we would, let's say we were chatting or mm-hmm. having lunch outside or going around the city. So what I would have done is like I would put a camera here on a tripod and film it from the beginning till the end, mm-hmm. which is again hard work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's kind of my lab to look at I'm not looking at microbes, but I'm looking at human beings from a... Uh, we are the test subjects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in, uh, so for my study, for instance, in, in classrooms, I usually put like three cameras, which is, again, physically exhausting as well. Mm-hmm. And, the, and in the days I started my research, the tripods were very heavy and the mm-hmm. cameras were very huge. Mm-hmm. The digital cameras hadn't uh, come in then. And after I collected my data, the digital cameras were bought by my lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Once you have these video recordings, it could even be like, let's say, you having uh, breakfast with your family every day. So I will collect this for like 15 days, 20 days. It doesn't matter. It can be like, but Mm. I have to have like a repeated um, um, activity being Mm. uh, taken. And after that, what we do is like we look at the video recordings and find for for a very interesting phenomena in this. So no questions, no hypothesis. And after locating that, let's say how you, how you give, how you pass water at okay. your lunch table, mm-hmm. uh, and that action because we look at actions as well, not just words. How you nod, mm-hmm. the pauses between uh, our interactions, mm-hmm. how we are sitting around, everything tells us a lot about the whole actions, which might. I mean, I also get this question, like, why do this? Uh, I was going to ask you this. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but it's very enriching. Like I had a a data session uh, just um, two days ago where I took two minutes uh, video recording, two minutes and 27 seconds, actually. And we spent time like about 50 seconds for one and a half hour looking at and pausing the video where the hands are actually moved Mm -hmm. and I didn't have one action in the transcript which was very detrimental for the analysis Mm -hmm. so even the small tiny thing is can change the analysis of this whole thing so coming to your question what it does for instance if I were filming a doctor patient interaction a doctor's appointment I can look at how the how the doctor asks the questions because even a single word, if, if the doctor changes a single word, the trajectory of the whole interaction after that is changed. Mm-hmm. You might have observed this in your podcast recording as well. Yeah, yeah. Like a single word. Mm-hmm. And uh, a colleague, for instance, uh, did research on doctors in the U.S. Uh, the doctors had English as their first language. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like uh, hundreds of doctors. 
but all were asking a question after three-fourth, a certain question after three-fourth of the, the whole appointment. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, we talked about um, stereotypes and uh, fixed uh, patterns in society. Mm -hmm. So those doctors had brought the, that pattern in their everyday interactions with the patients. And you don't see that uh, because it becomes invisible when you yeah, keep on doing yeah. the repeat. So when the researchers saw that, that question was uh, the, uh, the medical students were trained to ask that question in the beginning because then saves a lot of time of the doctors mm -hmm. and uh, it has effect on the diagnosis as well. So it's like just a tiny uh, aspect, and um, but depending on what you are researching, it can have a it can have a very big impact on the macro mm -hmm. level policy if you zoom in on the tiny parts of the society. Yeah, yeah now I understand much better. And then, uh, like you mentioned, like how words, like even a single word, can change their trajectory. Uh, of like the whole conversation or the meaning of the the context of the whole thing like I guess like when laws are being passed or when someone is writing bills or like in court or whatever the language has to be super precise yeah. like each word has to be super super precise it could mean life or death or like it could change the whole law or how we operate in society and I mean the, the general assumption is that we talk randomly but mm -hmm. our talks are very systematic and that's what the researchers in my field have found out it's a very it's a relatively new field of research started in the 70s when the founder of the research called Harvey Sachs he he uh, I think he he had audio tapes from a suicide intervention or help line mm -hmm. yeah and at that time there were there weren't um, video cameras or he doesn't ha he didn't have the recordings of the video cameras but now we don't work without video cameras because okay. we want to look at yeah. all aspects the of body the body language well, yeah. and non-verbal aspects i mean he looked at all the recordings and he found all the patterns were same and i can give you one ex another example like regardless of which part of the world you are which country you are in which city you are in when you when two people meet what is the first thing they say how are you? Hey, how are you? Hey, hello, right? Yeah. So the greetings come yeah, first. Yeah. And that's a pattern regardless. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's every time used, but that's the General most pattern. common yeah, yeah. pattern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And another thing is like, okay, so in Sweden, you might say, hey, Shana, mm -hmm. or different other, Gumaran. And in Pakistan, you might say, hello, salam alaikum, or uh, different languages, mm -hmm. right? So once one one person says it, according to the sociological and ethnomethodological mm -hmm. uh, research, the, the, there's a, there's, it's not a compulsion, but it's a social obligation of the answer. Uh, so let's say if I said, hello, Musa. Let's say we just met. Hello, Musa. Hey. Okay, let's try another. Hi, Musa. Hi. So you saw... <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, there, there was like a very much... I felt a different energy from you, so I had to... Come with the come same with, energy, yeah. yeah. So the tone, it's mm -hmm. it's just like so. Some people I know, like some colleagues, they just work on greetings, hello, hi, and the distance between the two utterances. Um, there is actually one colleague of mine who, who did research on first dates in UK, and I don't know how she got the video recordings, mm -hmm. uh, and she saw a pattern 
that most people were asking a question quite after, like in the middle of the uh, the conversation, mm-hmm. which because when you are in a conversation, you don't you're not actually seeing yourself from above or mm-hmm, outside. Mm-hmm. But when a researcher looks at uh, looks at the repetitive um, set uh, the incidences or cases, then we can see okay, so this is happening here. This should actually be moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those people actually use um, some people actually use this kind of research to train for better communication. Mm-hmm. And I have another example actually that might also be of interest. Uh, so there's a colleague who has a recording of a girlfriend and a boyfriend talking on the phone, and uh, so the girlfriend was talk uh, was calling the guy for like a whole day, mm-hmm. but he wasn't picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. And then when he picked up the phone, he didn't say hello. So there's a whole transcript of it as well. And he said, how are you? And his tone is like this. And then there's a big pause, which for us is a big, is, um, as a conversation analyst, it's, it's, it's a sign of trouble. And then she says, where were you? And even like in 30 seconds, you can predict that... The Shit con- is about to go down. <laughs> yeah, so the conversation isn't aligning. Yeah. Uh, and needless to say, they, they broke up after mm-hmm. that conversation mm-hmm. so it's uh, if you if you see the transcripts uh, of uh, these micro interactions mm-hmm. they're really very uh, eye opening and enriching because they're from real life um, situations mm-hmm. The the example you gave first about hi, hello, how are you? I've thought actually about this a lot. It's like so weird. Like we're programmed to say, like if you say, how are you? I'm always going to say I'm good. I'm fine. Like mm-hmm. even if my mother died, the, how are you? I'm good. And then you continue on. Oh, yeah, my mother died or I'm sick or whatever. Like the first response is just our brain is like set to hmm. I'm good or fine. It's very rare that people actually say, yeah, I'm not good or something like that yeah but because that would in in our field that that is called a dispreferred action mm-hmm. like if 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 somebody meets me for the second or third time and if he says how are you and i start telling about i just broke my leg and i mean that's not uh, it's not that dispreferred actions don't take place but it's not a preferred action. Like if you go to your class as well, right? And if your teacher says, how are you? Preferred action would be to say, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been sleeping or my weekend mm-hmm. wasn't good. Mm-hmm. But depending on the the relationship, then uh, the research also shows that it is a preferred action that you, you can start talking about your mm-hmm. real issues. Uh, the next time someone asks me, I'm going to go all philosophical. <laughs> yes. How am I? Yeah. Did God put me here? <laughs> who am I? How? <laughs> and who is I? Yeah, who, who is, is I? <laughs> what do you mean by how? Yeah. Is it, are you talking about my physical health, my mental health? <laughs> yeah. And then you, if you recall all this conversation, then you will feel that, you know, from point A <clears throat> to point C, or from the beginning of your conversation to a certain point, it took you took you a lot of turns. I mean, if you have all the time, you can sit in the garden and keep on asking everybody, like Hyde Park or somewhere mm. where people do these kind of conversations. But otherwise, you won't go philosophical. If you're in a jokey mode, right, mm-hmm. then you might say, how am I? Something I really I noticed very weird that, but I don't know if it uh, connects with your field, but I was the podcast I had uh, with Aptisam, we were talking about really deep stuff about trauma and therapy and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And I was really focused. And then we were talking 
and then the tone was serious but then while i was editing the podcast two three days ago and then i was like in my home i was comfortable and then i was listening back i felt like really crying and then my eyes watered but i felt that's really weird i should have cried while i was talking because it was in the moment and the it was more deeper it was i felt weird i looked at myself from like a third person that uh the whole phenomena was kind of weird that i already know what we talked about why is it having a more bigger impact mm. on me the second time but but you know like i think it's similar to our feel like mm-hmm. when we observe people through the lens of the camera uh, like when i'm filming mm-hmm. i'm actually very focused on the on the cameras the the microphones mm-hmm. because the recordings uh, you y- you take permission from the participants mm-hmm. and they honor you with with their secrecy and uh, a, pr- a private life and let you in there and you're filming so i'm very tense about the recording should go fine and yeah. then it's uh, i'm ethically bound to keep those recordings so i'm 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 really very stressed out when i'm in in, in that kind of a uh, situation so i'm not act- i don't actually look through what's going on at that time uh, they make sense yeah, yeah so right I, now I, i'm focusing might, on different things yeah, i'm focusing so on the conversation be, that might the be yeah. a case for you as well like yeah, i yeah, yeah. i recall uh during my phd studies um when we had data sessions like i told you in uh, in data sessions conversation analysts um uh, we call data sessions our playgrounds so this is where all researchers bring their data and we work and look at it together we have transcripts and we um rewind and uh, like look at it 5 10 times and then we start analyzing Mm-hmm. with the lens of our theoretical perspectives so once somebody actually brought video recording from a person interacting with their caregivers and that person couldn't i think speak or uh, see and that person could only communicate through tactile movements so by touching okay and that was really very intense for me to watch the whole communication like the person's key dropped and then that Uh, the person helped and we did a lot of work on that but that actually shook me and i mean there are so many other types of interactions where i felt i was really very moved but this was uh, where i felt uh, i i cried on the mm. spot in the data session because it was quite different for me and since you talked about trauma and um, mental health i think we sometimes we become insensitive to so many things because so many things are becoming are happening right now in the world we can only pick and choose to become sensitive to certain things we cannot respond to every issue uh, so that might be the case like our traumas our backgrounds the things which make us sensitive that's only those things which touch our heart that's mm-hmm. where we maybe find uh, more sadness so yeah i'm really interested in like uh, in psychology and psychiatry that kind of stuff and one thing that they practice is called exposure therapy like if someone is afraid like people uh, are afraid to go in the elevator or people are afraid of spiders and the exposure therapy is yeah little by little you expose them to that fear and then mm-hmm. eventually through that exposure like 50 times like okay take one step just one day take mm-hmm. one step towards the elevator go back next day come back take two steps yeah. on the elevator so the more you expo- get exposed the more uh insensitive you get uh-huh. that's thing i i realize when 
Uh, do you remember when there was like a terrorist attack when the truck went into yeah. the Drottningsgatan? Yes, yeah. yeah, I was at school and everyone was crying oh, and everything. Yeah. And then I realized I didn't feel anything. Uh-huh. I mean, it was uh, obviously I'm not a psychopath. I thought it was a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I didn't like feel a certain sadness. And then I realized because I've lived all my life in Pakistan, yeah, and know, all the news 24 <laughs> seven, mm-hmm. you're seeing people dying mm-hmm. and bombs happening, this yeah. car crash and the news is only showing the bad stuff. Then so you were you kind really of numb to, to that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that a lot of times as well. Uh, sometimes I become too involved in emotionally involved in, in if something like that happens but your example of that uh, what did you say what kind of psychotherapy was uh, it? exposure therapy exposure th- yeah i was thinking of i mean you don't have kids but i have kids so i'm thinking about when children are six months old and then later they start crawling and then they start walking it's it's kind of exposure mm-hmm. psychotherapy like yeah, yeah. because they they of course, their first experience of falling and being hurt could prevent them from walking, yeah. but they keep on pushing, you help them, uh, and that's how they learn different things. Mm. And mm. as a mother, I remember that since my kids actually got a lot of, um, had, had a lot of accidents of different sorts, like uh, once I think one of them fell um, in a in a trench in Pakistan. Oh, shit. It's, uh, it was 94. Five or something, you know, when, when there was like a Kargil war or mm-hmm. I don't remember mm-hmm. when, which year was it. No, I think that was 98, 99, 99, yes. 98, uh, So my son, somebody pushed my son in it and he got hurt on his head and um, and then similar kind of accidents as well. And then I think, I mean, at that time, I was the adult with mm-hmm. them. So I had to be the adult. And of course, I was the adult. But I, I, I feel now that it made me i wouldn't say braver but it kind of made me stronger in some ways that i was able to hold bleeding my my own bleeding kids because i mean obviously you, you feel the pain of your own child so much that that's the i would say the norm uh, for every parent and i i've it made me stronger, but also more resilient in, in different ways. And that experience probably I won't have for my own self if I got hurt. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, then I might react differently. But I I hear you when you said you had, you felt like uh, numb or you did, or maybe you didn't know how to react to that. Could be, could be. For the Drottning Garden thing, I mean, it's so exceptional for Stockholm, also for Pakistan if you think, I mean, we didn't have that in the 70s or the 80s or the early 90s. And then uh, it came there as well. And that also like the reaction to what's happening to our surroundings also becomes part of us. Yeah. So I, I actually strong. Uh, so my I have a very total uh, like I have totally different reaction to yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I lose my mind and I, I get really mm-hmm. like stressed out if I hear like a loud bang mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, like like a siren or the ambulance sound mm-hmm. that can really trigger me. Actually, now I remember I also like since I love photography and I want to do journalism photography. I remember when that happened, my plan, my idea was to go there. Like my first thought was to actually go there and take pictures of the incident. Oh. Yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe that's we'll... why I couldn't really focus on the sad part or yeah, yeah. 
or it could be that you didn't read or uh, things like that. But, but I think, uh, yeah. We can use exposure therapy in, uh, like in any part of life. If if you want to learn something, yeah. then you have to get exposed to it. And coming back to what the mental trauma or whatever that is, mental health issues, is the problem we have with that is that we don't talk about it enough. We don't get exposed to it enough. Listening to other people having conversations about it or having the conversations ourselves or being, being shown it on media or whatever it is. Mm. And... Exposure therapy could be really helpful in dealing with those things that if you actually if expose people, of, yeah. If you're scared, yeah, the fe- uh, yes, for sure. Like, if you have fear of water, you slowly and gradually, I mean, I'm just using water as a metaphor, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you slowly and gradually touch water. And, uh, I mean, it depends on how bad your trauma or, mm, I mean, what, yeah, what is yeah, the yeah. cause? Because I'm now thinking about... Since you evoked old memories as well, <laughs> uh, thinking about Drottninggarten, when Dr- the Drottninggarten's uh, incident happened, actually my daughter was very close in, in a hotel mm-hmm. listening to a lecture um, near Drottninggarten. And I was so worried about her. And when I saw her on FaceTime, I, I got a bit relieved. But mm-hmm. when you go back to social media or the news channels and then you are like, um, looking at that this is happening something uh, very dear to you in, in real time. And I was not in, in Stockholm. Uh, so I, I, I got so anxious and so hyper. Uh, but it was also connect. I mean, I knew she was safe. Yeah. And I, I contacted um, some people in the embassy to help us mm-hmm. evacuate her from that place. And they did actually come mm-hmm. to help, even though it was... Uh, uh, too crowded outside yeah, yeah, yeah. and traffic was closed but people were so helpful uh, they used uh, hashtag like uh, hashtags like um, Stockholm uh, I don't remember do you remember there was there were very good hashtags mm-hmm. through which people helped different uh, people in that part of the city mm-hmm. uh, but it also evoked uh, other memories of Pakistan as well when my daughter again actually was was in her school when a terrorist entered the school oh shit which city was this? It was Peshawar. And I was actually living right across to that school, uh, a few hundred meters from that school. And somebody who came to tell me who would pick her up from the school told me that there's actually a suicide bam- bomber in the school. And it was like a terrifying experience for me. I can't imagine how you felt or yeah. dealt with it. So parents actually gathered outside the school mm-hmm. while the military or the um, the, the, the agencies mm-hmm. who go in to detonate the bombs mm-hmm. or uh, they went in with dogs, we could see them. That was like really a very shocking mm-hmm. experience. Every so it, nothing happened. Everything was safe. Uh, the the person uh, who went inside was caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they detonated mm-hmm. bombs, but the shock, I guess, lives in with you mm-hmm. unless and until yeah. you go to therapy, mm-hmm. and that helps you uh, work on those different uh, d- uh, those mm-hmm. parts of mm-hmm. your memory. Because even though it's from distant past, it still hurt unless and until I contacted someone to help me untangle those mm-hmm. parts of the memory. Yeah, being a mom or like a dad, any kind of parent, so difficult because 
on one hand, you have to be this powerful person to have all the answers yeah. to give to your parents. That's very give, scary. Yeah. I mean, you put it very right. Yes. All the answers. So I don't have pressure. the answers if my children are listening. Yeah. <laughs> and then when something goes wrong, then the child thinks, hey, you, that person has supposed to have the answers and they're supposed to be at the authority. And then once you grow up, you realize they're just as lost as me. Yeah, that's yeah. very, yeah. you rightly put it. The thing is, I think you're, you're absolutely right. As a mom or a dad, when you become parents for the first time, you are learning on your job how mm. to be a mom and a dad. Mm. You might have seen your parents or uncles and aunts, mm. um, but I remember even when my firstborn was born, I would actually check her breathing every night. Mm. Is she alive? Have I killed her? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what have I done to her? Like, you, you know, like you have a living being who you are yeah, caring for. Yeah. It's not just feeding or cleaning or washing or uh, putting clothes on. It's the intellectual and the mental mm -hmm. uh, upbringing as well that you are transferring. And that's a very scary job. Yeah. Yeah. My parents got married or like had their first kid when they were about my age. And then I realized, like, if I had kids now, I would have no idea how to raise that kid. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at any age, I mean, yeah. age is... It, nothing can know. prepare you for that. Yes. And the thing is, maturity has nothing to do with age. Mm -hmm. That's also like, it's your experiences that you're exposed to and how much you take in, mm -hmm. which... Uh, but again, taking care of a kid is mm -hmm. a totally different yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. thing. I think it's the biggest response, one of the biggest responsibilities. You never retire yeah, as yeah. a parent. Mm -hmm. Even if you are 80 years old or 90, yeah, you, you yeah, are still yeah. a parent. Mm -hmm. And expectations uh, about parents, as you previously mentioned, being a Swedish Pakistani born here or born there, uh, expectations about migrant parents is so, so, so high. Uh, it's complicated, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you're living in a different place and then children might have different expectations from what they see in the society, mm -hmm. which the children haven't been exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, you have to deal with your identity crisis while also deal with your child's identity crisis. Yeah, but, but the child might see you from the eyes of his class fellows yeah where the parent doesn't know what he has he mm -hmm. or she has been like exposed to mm -hmm. there's a storybook by a pakistani migrant author uh, ruksana khan mm -hmm. uh, big red lollipops big red lollipop actually and that's the book i used to read f to the urdu uh, group here in stockholm as well the book is she, she moved to canada in the 50s or the 60s when she was a very young girl and she writes about a true experience or a life ex her, her own life experience when she, when she got her um, her first birthday uh, party invitation mm -hmm. uh, at the age of i don't know 7 or 8 and she came home and she told her mom that uh, she got an invitation her mom says birthday do they celebrate birthdays like when you're born or something like that? So it's, I mean, not everybody in Pakistan might be actually celebrating birthday. It might be a very urban thing, yeah, I would yeah. say. Um, and then she says to her mom that I, I've been invited. And she says, OK, if you're going, you're taking your younger sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I had to do that all the time <laughs> yeah. as well. So, it's, um, so the thing is, like, parents, migrant parents live in a different world. And children live mm, in a different world. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, you mentioned you are really into Urdu poetry. Like, who's your favorite poet? Uh, it's a difficult question. I think I like, I mean, Ghalib, of course, mm-hmm. I like. Uh, and I like Fez, Ahmed Fez, mm-hmm. Ahmed Faraz. Ibn Insha a lot. And Iqbal for, like, spiritual mm-hmm. and deeper intellectual mm-hmm. things. Do you have a favorite share line or something? Yeah, you can read I mean, to us. Favorite, but I, if you want, I just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. tweeted one, which I could read to you. My favorite well. one is the Ghalib. Uh-huh. Which means that you could smile or laugh at other at things before some time, right? Things used to make you laugh or smile before, hmm. but now nothing phases you. So this is from Ghalib. Dil hi to hai. Na sangu khisht, dard se bhar na aay kyon? Roenge hum hazaar baar, koi hume rulai kyon? Could you give a small explanation? Explanation. So this is Ghalib, who uh, who's, who actually was a very good poet, and, and some call him the best poet of Urdu literature. Uh, but he had a very struggling life yeah. when it comes to finances. And... L- I I didn't actually know about this as well that he could he could write in many languages and he mm-hmm. did yeah uh, and many from that that era actually wrote in Persian because Persian was the court language mm-hmm. for seven hundred years yeah. on the subcontinent so he Persian is the biggest chunk of his poetry actually seventy mm-hmm. percent I yeah. think and then Urdu Hindi uh, Arabic as well. Uh, I haven't seen Punjabi, and he was from a Turkish language background mm-hmm. since his parents uh, used that. So the background of this is that if I'm sad or if somebody hurts me, then I'm going to cry a lot. Why wouldn't I weep? And that's kind of nice, given his circumstances, very struggling mm-hmm. finances. Um, but you won't find this in uh, Iqbal. Iqbal doesn't deal with these kind of like yeah. mundane uh, things. But another one, the Bahar one that I just mentioned. Ghalib is the like a typical Pakistani guy's favorite uh, poet because he likes girls and he likes mangoes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he talks a lot about romance. But yeah, the thing yeah, yeah. is, in Urdu poetry, when those poets are talking about ishq, it's not that ishq. It's Ishke uh, Hakiki. Hakiki, which is the God. spiritual, yeah. yes, the God. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious they're talking about a girl, but our teachers are like, oh, yeah, no, but he's talking about love of God and whatever. Yeah. He's <laughs> describing a woman's body and her hair and everything. But no, no, no this no. is a metaphor for something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like like Iqbal's. Okay, so I'll read this one as well. Sitaron se aage, jahan aur bhi hain. Abhi ishke imtihaan aur bhi hain. Uh, and the, I, I did the translation of this one as well. There exist other worlds beyond the stars. There still are more tests of love to come. I translated ishq to love, which doesn't actually... Ishq is a more deeper... It's it more, more deeper. deeper and it, and mm-hmm. the ishq Iqbal is talking about is not the romance of your, yeah, with yeah, your yeah. friend or your wife or whoever. It's the higher... Uh, the test of love, ishq, is the struggle he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And For those who don't know, Iqbal lived through the um, when the British were leaving the subcontinent, and he was one of the main forces behind making Pakistan independent. Yeah, but interestingly, isn't his poem the national anthem of India? Really? 
सारे जहां से अच्छा शिकवा which means complaint oh, and jawab mm. shikwa the complaint the answer to the complaint which i would say that if somebody did that now it would be considered very blasphemous you're complaining to allah and god in that point it was still considered blasphemous when it came it, out it, uh, yeah it was yeah. but i mean it's it's even now all the mm-hmm. singers are singing mm-hmm. it and he he's complaining and daring to complain to god in very open like long verses it's it's i don't know how long it is but it's mm-hmm. very long mm-hmm. yeah so the theme is really um uh, is very challenging but also to think about in the pakistani or the muslim society now would people be accepting this kind of thing mm-hmm. and then he writes jawab shikwa using allah or god mm-hmm. to answer to yeah, the people which is even more blasphemous yes it could be like uh, so he's saying okay uh, so in the first poem it's like i uh, so we did this 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 god why are you putting on us in this mm. and then he replies like okay you did this 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 why did you didn't you do this so it's uh, kind of mm-hmm. um, there is like a line in the second uh, jawab shikwa which affects me really deeply it's uh, something that if why are you crying when i promise you what's the line wada hai is it the wada wada kiya tha humne something the thing is that he's complaining and giving all these complaints to god that why didn't you help me why did you put me on this earth or this burdens on me and then in the jawab shikwa god replies that why are you sad why are you in sorrow when i have already promised that i will listen to you or something like that Mhm yeah okay so Maybe I can is it jo- is it jawab shikwa I think so I listen to the Coke Studio version song okay, that's yeah. where I learned it And then he also I mean his PhD thesis was is it reconstruction or something like that of Islamic thought so he is calling uh for changes in the Muslim societies we 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 think that at religion should be i mean generally it's accepted in our pakistani background but other muslim uh, groups as well that religion should be fixed or stagnant i'm not talking about the basic tenets of faith i mean of course the basic tenets stay as they are and there's like oneness of god i'm not saying i'm not challenging that but of course we we forget that the muslims at the practice level they're so different from each other mm-hmm. even if you go within the pakistan's different provinces from south to north mm-hmm. people practice in different ways they are socialized about religion just like culture by their parents by the immediate family members you were taught how to be a muslim mm-hmm. uh, by your parents or you were taught about how to eat roti and uh, you know yeah, yeah. curry by your parents and same is true for religion as well but iqbal calls for making changes about uh, islamic thought which is i would say a very prophetic 
way of thinking about religion. Uh, it's not stagnant, and that would probably be a very open, it could be relieving uh, many young people yeah. as well as older generations not to not to be stressed out mm-hmm. about someone else's expectation of what religion is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because then there is a gap between who we are and what we are expected to be. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he wasn't criticizing Islam, but he was mm. criticizing what the typical mullah or malvi preach, preached and what their perception was. Oh, if you're not wearing hijab, you're not a Muslim. Or if you're yeah. not wearing your trouser above your ankles, you're not a Muslim. That kind of yeah. thought. I just remember the verse. It's called, Sar ko patakh ke ro raha hai. Mm-hmm. Humne to dene ka vada kiya hai. Aha, so why you, I mean... Why are you even crying? I've always already promised yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the promise is already there. So why cry about that? Mm-hmm. So yeah, poetry has um, has this power of words. Even <laughs> if you think about rap these days, which comes out from different parts of uh, Sweden, mm-hmm. is it's also a good expression which challenges status mm-hmm. quo mm-hmm. of the society. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're moving into different genres, mm-hmm. different times and yeah. places. It's so very weird when I think about sounds stupid that how not this phenomena but me thinking about it sounds stupid that how like when we're saying words is just air like sound waves are just air in different frequencies mm-hmm. and it's such a weird complicated mechanism this air hits our eardrum it vibrates yeah and then these sound waves which is basically just air they invoke emotion deep really deep emotions Mm -hmm. and then it can actually change your behavior your mood yeah yeah, it it definitely like we talked about one word changing the trajectory and we we Mm. practice this high salam thing as well yeah if you think about if you just wake up every morning and you go to your parents and tell them good morning just try this like for 10 days and you you will see my parents said the phone (laughs) (laughs) or you just say okay you okay say to them amma I'll throw the garbage, whatever way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I'll go and bring the yogurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. it just bring the change the tone and you'll see how it changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If there are no, I mean, if the parents are not abusive or I'm not talking about those, but general, yeah, yeah, in yeah. general relation, even if you just try this in, in, in a shop, mm-hmm. just try changing your tone mm-hmm. or just put a smile. I mean, uh, as, as I said, non-visual, uh, non-verbal aspects of your body also. Mm-hmm have a have a um, like a impact in our communication so yeah try something with your mm-hmm. mom then <laughs> i noticed that's a problem with me as well that uh, i cannot communicate my emotions through my mood like looking at my face or my expressions mm-hmm. w- expressions wouldn't communicate the mood or the feeling i'm feeling uh-huh. People usually think, hey, like when someone gives me a good news, I'll, I'll be super happy. But people, uh, hey, aren't you happy? It just just because I'm not like super smiling doesn't mean I'm not happy. Yeah. I just like I process emotion internally like a lot. Mm-hmm. I would say like for teachers, for instance, we tell them to like um, film themselves. Like I I've personally film myself like how I, how I teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all the time, but sometimes when I want to improve on certain parts of my teaching uh, because teaching is all through talking yeah so i want to see how i'm how do i look i look very stressed 
um, not through Zoom, but when I go to the classrooms, I, I initially look uh, stressed until and unless my computer is fixed and it's connected with mm -hmm. the with the projector. projector. So I, I saw that aspect. So filming actually, and then you look at yourself like, if you listen to yourself, so maybe if you see what you're doing, you could practice on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's also, like, these are all trainable things. Yeah, yeah, this is small. Like, mm. even listening to the podcast over and over again, like, you get used to your voice and then you start yeah. noticing what words you use. And then you'll think yeah. about, okay, this is what I'll do mm -hmm. different next yeah, different, time. Yeah, it, it comes back to exposure therapy. You have to first expose yeah. yourself to mm. that situation. But remember, we talked about like being numb and shocked. Mm. Sometimes you you have like a lot of baggage in your, which is like difficult to. Mm. When you're overexposed to things, yeah. then other things don't really phase you. But but I I have like um, sometimes my children give that reaction as well and. Uh, but maybe it's not a big thing mm -hmm. for them, for instance, I tell them. Like I saw somebody, an actor, an actor on Clubhouse, mm -hmm. and I was, I, I told all my kids, listen, that person is in the Clubhouse, in the room. And they were, okay, mom, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For them, it wasn't like, uh, mm -hmm. but I felt like, oh, wow, now people can ask uh, questions mm -hmm. in this space, mm -hmm. which is interesting how this will develop in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm numb or sensitive or not. Yeah, like, yeah, I still I get super happy. I cry on like watching mm. puppies. <laughs> okay. So yeah, but some, I, I guess it, humans beings are very so complicated. Depends on our mood, our how did our day went, how did we wake up. It's so everything. What we do we eat? How much sleep we get? Everything is so interconnected. Yeah. So many factors. It's not just one thing that you can point your finger on. Hey, that's the no, issue. No, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like our friends, they also come with their histories and yeah, yeah. their way of expressing things. So I could possibly be jumping here if I see, let's say, I don't know, Queen of yeah, yeah. Stockholm and mm. my children here will say, okay, mom, that's <laughs> nothing so big. Uh, so that might be, you know, the mm. case as well. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard yeah. of that joke, Pakistani joke, or I think it's Punjabi joke. Uh, a, a, there was a couple, uh, the guy could fly in the air okay have you heard of this no, no? and uh, so the guy did many things and the woman said okay that's fine and finally he showed that he could fly by himself mm -hmm. in there and she wasn't still impressed mm -hmm. uh, so that's also like for some people even if you fly in yeah, the air yeah, that not, not might not be like yeah, for me yeah. it's like if i see the queen i might even jump yeah, over yeah, this yeah, window yeah, yeah, yeah. but for my children it won't be the same mm -hmm. So we have different uh, like way of expressing expressing yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and I think for them it might be a video game where they are like super super mm -hmm. players in that game and for me it's okay just shut the yeah, yeah. PlayStation yeah. and come and eat mm -hmm. it's no big deal yeah. so it yeah. depends on mm -hmm. what's more important for you thank you so much for talking coming today thank you do you wanna what's your like Instagram you wanna promote the Muslim researchers and Swedish yeah, sure. Pakistanis mm -hmm. you can tell them muslim scientists you can follow us on instagram uh, facebook and twitter uh, we would uh, like i mean the name is muslim scientists but we would want everyone to um, support us everyone from majority context non-muslim context non-migrant context as well uh, because it's very important that 
not just brown men and brown and black men and women and white men and uh, women as well from the scientist community mm-hmm. are are see, are seen uh, but are also like brought into the regular majority spaces as the other so i, w- I would like everyone to uh, read those stories they're about 40 more than 40 because we did the whole year and uh, check out swedish pakistanis as well there are lots of people who have for the one year um, curated for us. Uh, you can read their stories. You can contact them, network with them. If you're, you're looking for a specialist, uh, you can check both Muslim scientists and Swedish Pakistanis. Mm-hmm. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me through Instagram or Twitter as well. Okay, I'll leave those uh, connections in the description. Sure. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Peace be upon you all.